0: Welcome to the Electrify News Podcast presented by Electrify Expo, North America's largest electric vehicle festival. Get tickets or get involved. Find out how at electrifyexpo.com. Hello and welcome back to the Electrify News Podcast. I am Matt Teske and today we are joined by a special guest and someone whose name has been in motorsports for a long time. Uh, And really I think everybody's going to get a kick out of this conversation because mainly this is this is someone who knows what it means to be behind the wheel of not just any car, electric or gas, but this is this is the world he's lived in for a long time. It's Tanner Faust. Tanner,
1: thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah. So, uh, first question, I, I think, is, is that I would like to ask you. Number one, just being, you know, your history with with everything you've done, um, is how are we going to get Adam Ferreira to get out of a Buick and into an electric car?
1: <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, it's a good question. I'm amazed we got him out of a Cadillac. It's, it's all he talks about was Cadillacs. And you, you know, it's funny if you talk to about car enthusiasts in general. I mean, goes to, go to Cars and Coffee on a Saturday morning or whatever. There's um, there's so much influence that we get from our parents on our car tastes. Yeah. And uh, in, for Adam, in Adam's case, it was his dad he used to work on some cars and loved Cadillacs. I'm pretty sure he comes from a mafia background. He just always sounds like he's speaking like a kind of a yeah an italian english version of mafia language (laughs) and um i'm sure he's whacked some guys you know that kind of thing and uh they just like cadillacs that's just you know that that his dad taught him that and that's so so i'm not sure you're going to see adam an electric car and he's not great with electronics anyway
0: (laughs) (laughs) he's very old school like he's got the when he says he has his car phone with him it's like a legit rotary phone in the old cadillac kind of thing
1: yeah don't you try to take a selfie with the guy and it's like a five minute thing. So it's not, um, you know, Oh, whoa. Just took a picture of the tree. Hold on. Whoop! That's me. That's my, how did I get a picture of my shoe on there? You know, it's that sort of a thing. And so, yeah, I don't know if he'd figure out all the, the minutia of a, of an electric car, but well, yeah. you know, he does love to drive. So that, well, that's, and, one that's important.
0: And that's it, right. Is he, he's a car guy at heart. And I think the reason why I wanted to open up that one is that, is he's oddly enough my favorite comic of all time and you've got a chance to work with him extensively uh i met him years ago at the portland auto show i had a chance to walk around him and i told him that he's like wait which 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 routine of mine did you fall in love with and it was from like 25 years ago and he was That's like man yeah he's like wow dude so it was fun but then we got to talk cars all day and that was one of the things we talked about was and i think he represents kind of that culture like you said it's like family culture of like they're a caddy family like they there's gm families there's ford families it's all these things and that's part of that conversation with EVs is these legacy brands that have been around for so long, that have so much heritage to them, they're now doing that pivot. And we've seen a lot of them have taken, they've kind of tried to take that heritage forward with the Mustang Mach-E, for example. They're attaching what is the future of their vehicle platforms to a heritage brand. I guess, what's, what's your thought on that? Do you think, do you think that's going to be something that will work for all of them? Are there only some, do you think, that can transition? Or is it more of a mix?
1: i be honest. I'm not a fan. I'm not a yeah. fan of you know like the Corvette SUV coming out. I'll yeah. Call it a yeah. Corvette. It's yeah. uh I I I get it. I mean I saw Tommy Boy. I know that uh, Callahan Auto <laughs> Parts are a premium brand, and so you know somebody's going to come in there and use that premium brand name to to add value to the crap that's on the shelf. But yeah. um, not saying that's a Ford Chevy did, but I'm just saying that using the brand Mustang and Corvette, which Really was built out of the hot rod days. Was built out of modification. It was right in the early days of modifying your car, street yeah. racing, and and discovering your freedom and expressing yourself through the performance of a pony car. Um, you know th- that DNA is is rich and yeah. and deep, and it's a part of Americana history, really. And to cash in on it to sell um, something that's the same platform as a Jimmy or a Tahoe or whatever, I don't know. It just, there is business wise, it may be what needs to happen, but uh, there's something that just rubs me a little bit wrong in in that way. Um, But uh, that being said, um, I, I am a big proponent to anything that keeps people interested in cars. Um, yeah. interested in the craft of driving and their skill set that they hold within themselves. Mm-hmm. And so if they need to be inspired by a brand name to to buy something and, and feel like they own something that it, that harkens back to, um, you know, the childhood dream of owning a Corvette, but this way they get an SUV out of it also and can pick up, you know, <laughs> uh groceries then then great it's uh you know it's all about getting people out on the road to take advantage of the ribbon of highway that's been laid out for us so that's uh that's what I'm still about
0: well it's and and to your point it's kind of like walking that fine line of of maintaining that authenticity of what the brand and the vehicle platform has been and it I, I I agree with you it can dilute what the heritage is It's you're just basing it purely off the brand name and purely off the nameplate, and we've already seen the upper, you know, the uproar from people that are you know steeped in the history of some of these these nameplates that are saying you can't do that. Now, you know, corporate America is going to do what they want, obviously, because they they have to transition into where this is going. But I I think there's more opportunity, kind of Volvo, you know, Volvo sort of did that with Polestar, where they leveraged something that was internal, but they made it a brand new element of a platform and really Mm -hmm. gave it its own face as a platform. Um, and maybe that's the angle to take. I, I still think GM had a huge opportunity with bringing back Saturn as their pure electric line. I thought that would have been great. Um, but I mean, that, that's the thing is is the, and, and we've talked about this oftentimes on the show, is that the history of how people think of Americana and being on the road and those brands that made it possible. And this is a huge pivot for brands that have to reimagine how they paint the picture for the future of, of basic brand enthusiasm. And EVs are a part of that. So, yeah, connecting the dots there, I think, yeah, they're, they're going to be walking that line of basically pissing some people off and exciting some people, right?
1: Yeah, there was a meeting I was in not too long ago, and I was racing Rallycross, which is a high-energy, small, leaderage, perfect sport for electric because very short heat races, et cetera, and a young demographic. Um, back when I was racing for Ford, we, we'd gotten Ford involved in Rallycross, by mm-hmm. doing the Pikes Peak Hill Climb with a Rallycross car. And then that ended up leading to a title sponsorship of X Games. And and there was a lot of um, great excitement about Rallycross. And then when we were talking about electrification some three, four, five years ago, mm-hmm. uh, somebody in the room, a guy named Jos Capito, who, who was running Volkswagen Motorsport at the time, said, um, you know, I'm not sure why we're talking about racing cars anymore it's all going to be suvs you know by the time this actually happens we need to be talking about the um replacing this idea that we're going to be racing hatchbacks to racing small suvs and every manufacturer that was represented in the meeting just sort of like yeah five years we're not talking cars anymore either and uh that's that just a lot of that
0: on its head though right i mean th- everything they've known about even just like the, the the layout of the vehicle i mean weight ratio how they design the structure of the car i mean that that changes how you're building a race program completely right
1: yeah well th- those cars were based on the chassis on the stock chassis so yeah. it wasn't like a tube frame start from scratch kind of a thing yeah. but um it's, it was more about the size of the vehicle needed to be something that could represent or manufacturers could customize to meet their SUV look. And um, that that for me was just an interesting realization that the manufacturers really, I mean, yes, you have some manufacturers that are still steeped in sports car world, but watching what we consider to be kind of the primary sports cars in the U S the Mustang and the Corvette turn towards SUVs is just a a telltale sign. And um, it just makes it, makes it feel more important to me than ever. To, uh, I guess, uh, keep going to the cars and coffees, keep um, inspired to drive because we could be one of the last generations, if not this, the next generation is probably the last generation to be able to take responsibility for ourselves driving a car um, in a city anyway. But yeah. um, so it's it's important to hold on to that human potential that we created and that freedom that we created. That's why I have a pilot's license. That's why, I, you know, I like to do these things where you kind of take control of your own A to B. And um, driving uh, for you probably like me was uh, a turning point in my life yeah. where suddenly the world was open and um, it, it really was a defining moment getting a driver's license. And I, it's sad to yeah. see that maybe not be the case in the future.
0: Actually, you, know, you bring up a good point, actually. And I've talked about this uh, over the years with a lot of people I know in the industry for auto is that, and actually I put something up on LinkedIn years ago about how the cell phone changed the automotive industry forever. And you just hit the nail on the head For what I used to you know, touch on is the fact that it was access to the world by getting your license. That's how you yeah. could go and see things, right? That's what our generations grew up with. And now you have this digital window into the world for going and seeing what the world can offer you through a smartphone and younger people are not seeing the same value as needing to be able to get a license to go out and experience things. They feel they are experiencing it you know, through a digital interface. And partly what's funny is electric cars are a weird mix of that, right? It's, it's that digital interface, but you're also still physically moving. You know, so it's this—it's this interesting blend in that way. But I can—I've I, heard people say, "Well, the, that means that you know, young people are never going to get their license." I think it's just going to be delayed. I think that, and maybe that's a bad thing, or I don't know if it's a good thing because they're not going to be so young that they maybe shouldn't have a license at sixteen. Because you and I probably had friends that got their licenses at sixteen that should have never been driving. You know, but <laughs> but then <Yeah>. there's <laughs> moving forward, they're going to be potentially going through college and getting their life started. And then realizing, well, I probably shouldn't you know, you know get ride hail to go to the grocery store. Or if I want to go on vacation, I'm going to have to like either fly or get a car. So maybe we're just pushing out how long people are going to have that same attention and love for cars. But that directly dictates how these brands have to think of, well, when do we capture people's imagination then with our brand and our new vehicle, right? Because it, yeah. it's not as a childhood thing, maybe. Maybe it's just different. Um, and so, again, I totally appreciate and agree with what you're saying about this.
1: Yeah, it's it, you wonder. I mean, if you really look at future society, I was just doing an extreme e race, which is an electric truck race. I, I series I do for McLaren. And I was doing it in Saudi Arabia, and it was at the the. Um, it's at the building site of the first section of a city called the Line, which is yeah. a hundred mile, hundred plus mile long city, yep. that's um, two hundred meters high, and um, this. Uh, so they're they're not going to really finish this project till like 2055. So they're thinking their planning now is really for what's next. And in their mm-hmm. mind people really aren't driving themselves. Cell phones are even outdated. You're not going to carry around a brick to communicate with. You're going to have it it's going to be either it's something like, or something. Yeah, yeah, something like that. There's going to be some. So in thinking future proof um, do you need people to take themselves to A to B if you really I mean are we being nostalgic um, the thing that I think is worrisome as a father anyway is are we missing out if they don't get that kind of experiential learning and that kind of um, that kind of turning point in their life or, or self-created freedom almost or, or the control over their own destiny mm-hmm. um, are they missing out on some sort of development of, of a part of their brain you know yeah. is, is it important for humans throughout our history we've always, been able to choose if we were going to stand along the edge of something or you know hurt our you know jump off or something you know we've had this 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 uh respect for the physicality of our our existence because yeah. we could hurt ourselves if we don't yeah. respect it and we don't learn some skill on how to walk right or whatever right. um so uh you wonder if there's if there's if 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 we do live through screens and interaction digitally, if we do lose a part of our brain development, and we must, in yeah. in my mind, and I, I would um, agree, yeah. So it, it, I think to some, it really sounds nostalgic for guys like us to be talking about. Oh, you need to get a driver's license. How can you not want a driver's license at sixteen? You know, yeah. um, and you know, shifting gears and all that kind of stuff. It does. It must sound very nostalgic. But I think part of it for me is I really worried that our next generation isn't developing a part of their brain by, you know, having that self risk uh, that they control.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, it's almost like, it's the combination of what was a sense of adventure for people that came before us. I mean, everybody that decided to go like when we, you know, in North America, when everybody went West, what did that mean? Well, there was a lot to grapple with. And that just sort of the, the idea of movement and what that meant, whether it was personalized and you owned and controlled it, or there became mass transit and how that worked for your needs. Even your, your concerns about, you know, the line in Saudi Arabia and how they're developing that out is with the vision of where could this go? Could we make it a, a, an ecosystem of living that doesn't require all these different pieces that people have to manage on their own, but could we give them a functional way to live, work and play that is connected? And they, and so, but then to your point, does that open up opportunities for them to think about other things and do other things that, that are also adventurous? Or is it, it's so autonomous and so thought for them that we turn into the, you know, everybody from the movie WALL-E, we're all floating around in those are like hovercraft things. And it's like, we don't do anything physical anymore. We just kind of let it all come to us because we designed it that way. I mean, this is number one, this is super philosophical and I'm loving the fact that we jumped right into this. So one thing that I think is important too, is just speaking to your experience. And for those who don't know your background and the different touch points you had within motorsport, I mean, everything from Formula D to, you mentioned Extreme E where, you know, where you're in now, It's kind of, where did you start and how did that phase through for the different touch points of motorsport that you got through? And how did that mold what you're just talking about right now, about, about how you engage with the automobile?
1: Well, uh, I, I didn't come from a racing family, so I never saw racing as a viable way to make a living. Um, growing up my family, they were all doctors or engineers or scientists and the, um, the so I went to school to be a doctor, and uh, w- it was in a pre-med major in Boulder. That's when I graduated undergrad, was at Boulder uh, with a molecular biology degree, but knew b- by the time I graduated that I didn't really want to stay in a lab and continue to study medicine. Um, I started working for an inventor who invented amusement rides, and okay. if you've ever worked for somebody like this, it, you, it's very contagious when you work for an entrepreneur that just comes up with something super fun and figures out how to make a living doing it. And that's, that's where that was the first experience I really had with that. So the two things I love to do are ski and uh, drive. And so um, I, I got a job as a mechanic at a local track in Colorado where I volunteered as a mechanic actually in return for seat time. I worked eight months on these freaking dirty race cars (laughs) <laughs> and I, and I got enough track time to do, to get my license and do one race. Wow. Um, but that was, that was the first taste. And that was enough that to realize how expensive motorsport was. Oh
0: yeah. Now was yeah. that before or after you finished school that you did the track? Like where you volunteered?
1: Uh, i had finished school. I had wow. finished school. I'd, I'd started working for this inventor. Um, he sold the company and, uh, moved to Florida. Um, I was vested in the company. So I got a check for $8,000 as my hey. of <laughs> life. That was more yeah, exactly. money than I'd even heard of anybody having. So I, I was like, forget this. I'm out. I'm yeah. just, I'm volunteering. I just went to the guys. I literally showed up at the racetrack and I told the guy, you don't even have to pay me. I'm set. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to work a on the t- car. What a movie. time to be
0: alive! Eight grand, yeah. dude. I'm set. <laughs> yeah, I'm
1: set. That was like probably ten months of my budget, at, you know, at the time. Right. But right. So, um, it. But I realized very quickly that it's incredibly expensive to uh race cars. So I got a job at Pikes Peak International Raceway, which was down in Colorado Springs. It's kind of the biggest racetrack in Colorado. As a sales guy selling sponsorships And they had an office in Denver and I learned really, I got great contacts there. I learned why people spend money on motorsport, why sponsors do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was another critical step towards figuring out how to make a business of motorsport. And then in the winter, I started working in Steamboat, Colorado, where I'm moving back to here soon um, as an ice driving instructor. And uh, that's where I really learned how to talk. The talk about car control vehicle dynamics and really uh, dissect the physics that go on in driving and in cars yeah and so from there and so maybe that's why i have a little bit of a physiological perspective when it comes to learning and experiential learning and with my daughter being you know just uh getting her driver's license in the last year um and uh but when i learn driving myself i think about it from a physiological standpoint how the eyes work how we have um you know evolved as human beings and how the human condition can hold you back um in a car really 99 yeah. percent of the time it's just trying to hurt you um <laughs> your your own instincts are just wrong all the time yeah. so it's i think that's been a critical part of uh kind of my perspective on on racing
0: well, that's such an interesting take, too, because the the medical background that you went to school for and how you and how you describe that. I, I mean, I would be hard pressed to believe you encounter a lot of other racers that are your counterparts that have that lens. I mean, they're probably the type that grew up, you know, doing cart racing and then just kind of worked their way up through the, you know the systems. I'm sure you've encountered that over the years. But as you were describing that. That strikes me that that is a completely different pathway to understand how humans interact with with an automobile, and then how you can manipulate it and be prepared to take advantage of it. Uh, it just strikes me that it's just a different way to think of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, you could put you could put ten racers in the room, and everybody has such a varied background. Yeah. But with, with the amount of track time and training and battling with the human condition, that that would all 10 would have had they're all coming to the same you could all speak the same language at the end of the day yeah even though i come from maybe a a scientific or or biological perspective they through experience crashing carts since they were six years old feeling where their eyes are telling them where to look and when they're where they know where they should look you know, they they are recognizing the exact same things that that I am,
0: although... Just different. They, like they got to the, the end point differently, yeah.
1: Right, yeah. Where yeah. I'm seeing it from a scientist thing where, you know, they've been studying humans and how, the, how we see edges instead of blank spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like when you're in a... If you have like a bus or something hit the brakes in front of you, unfortunately, the tendency is to swerve, just not quite fast enough and hit the edge of the bumper as you go right. by it right now while you're on the brakes and that's because in a stressful situation your eyes lock onto edges of things they don't lock into blank spaces like um if you wanted the car to go into the blank space where it wouldn't hit the bus you'd have to look at the blank space yeah but instead you look at the edge of the bumper thinking you're steering enough but really you're steering right to the edge of the bumper
0: right to the thing you want to be avoiding yeah yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and so there, but um, uh, the other racers would certainly recognize that problem with being, you know, a human in a stressful scenario, but maybe they wouldn't have, you know, seen the experiments that they did on, you know, chimpanzees for dozens of years to figure right. that out.
0: Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and to the physiological side of it, uh, when you made the transition and you started racing an extreme E or the first time you really started racing and driving electrics, how did, how does the feel of the car from your perspective change then because the car is not responding the same way as for example from a transmission perspective shifting perspective even the feel of the engine and how how it's res- how it's responding to the feel of the vehicle how did how did you respond to that is that was that also kind of a physiological response where you had to kind of reassess how to engage with the car
1: i think a little bit it's more about muscle memory you kind of okay. get used to something right mm-hmm. and the main thing the main difference that i find Driving on slippery surfaces, whether it's kind of sand, not sand really, but dirt or something where you have enough power to get wheel spin, mm-hmm. um, there is that uh, when you have gears, the top of that gear is as fast as you can spin the tires if you have a heavy foot. Yeah. So if you're in second gear, sliding and exiting a corner and you're not sensitive to the wheel spin and you add a little bit too much throttle, it's just going to go up to the rev limiter of second gear, which say that's 45 miles an hour. And that's as much wheel spin as you're going to get mm-hmm. until you get third gear. And then your potential wheel spins higher. In an electric car, if you're not sensitive with the throttle, you can get up to 100, whatever the maximum right. speed is right away. Yeah. And so then lifting off to regain grip takes a lot longer. And yeah. so you have to be much more sensitive and cognizant of how much potential wheel spin you have under your right foot. And then it's, and this is what I love about motorsport is that within the rules, then the teams can shape the throttle curve. They can shape the sensitivity Mm -hmm. of the throttle based on, you know, maybe where you are on the track or how much resistance the tires are getting, how much grip, just to, just to help you with that throttle throttle management. And then Mm -hmm. that kind of tech and those lessons learned can make their way into production cars Mm -hmm. uh, to be beneficial for people driving on the snow or whatever.
0: Yeah. Well, and and to that, well, to that end, too, is you, you've even got to consider not just on wheels, but it's also even you know weight ratio for the battery being really low. If you're doing something like drift, for example, how would that differ if you're doing something like Extreme E? Because in Extreme E, I'm thinking that might help with like rollover potentially. But then for drift, is it something where it's just so low? It's like, well, the weight of everything is now directly below me. It's going to therefore dictate how I'm throttling the vehicle. Is that Would that be correct?
1: Um, in some cases you like with drifting something extreme like that, it's not a bad idea to have some body roll. Yeah. Um, and so having the low center of gravity can make it more tricky. If you imagine in a rally cross car, typically a rally cross car is pretty low, pretty wide. Um, they have a differential between, you know, the, the left and right tires to minimize the wheel spin that one can take over the other. Yeah. But when you have body roll, uh, one contact patch is bigger than the other contact patch. So even though those left and right tires are essentially locked together, when you push the power down, you're getting more power on the outside, outside.
0: tire than yeah. the inside, yeah, yeah. so it
1: helps turn the car. Yeah. So that body roll can actually be used to help kind of a torque vectoring almost.
0: So, so if it's too low, you have to basically figure out how to then re, rebalance that out. Like what, what then triggers that opportunity to then you know gain that, 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 that patch right. and that traction on the outside wheel? Or tire,
1: yeah, you're yeah. always going to get some load transfer, but it. But when you get to the point where you have so much minimal um, body roll, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now you're thinking, oh, okay. How can we actively add torque vectoring? Oh, if there's four engines, okay, and four motors, maybe we can add it. And so we're sort of artificially creating what has been sort of uh, engineered over the last hundred years. Yeah. Um, but you can, uh, and and that's again what how, how it starts to work. Um, there are some issues so you take like a typical car out on the road that's got dual motor right Mm -hmm. two motors so it's four-wheel drive but unlike a four-wheel drive road car that's combustion they don't have a drive shaft usually connecting the front and rear motor right so a four-wheel driven car um that's combustion uh will if you're accelerating the front and rear are tied together. Even though you have load transfer to the rear tires, um, the front tires aren't allowed to just sit there and uh, spin freely because they're connected to the rear that is planted. Um, With electric dual motor cars that don't have a drive shaft connecting them, um, as soon as you get on the accelerator coming out of a corner, it's almost like a front wheel drive car because the front can spin up by itself with those smaller contact patches and that load transferring to the rear. So now you have to have this digital traction control that only allows the front to spin maybe 500 or 1,000 RPM more than the rear, and it's kind of like an artificial drive shaft.
0: It's like yeah, it's all software based now. I mean, it, it's it all really software is a, based, right,
1: and, and you I really think, rely on that software. Yeah,
0: well, and that's part of. I you know, companies like you know, again, I think about the aftermarket and companies like AEM, for example. They're getting into EVs, and 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 I see that that could be an opportunity to translate some of what we've seen in the aftermarket. Which, and again, in the traditional, let's say, the tuner world where I grew up in. It's it's kind of like okay well this was all based on mechanical engineering, I mean really if you think about it the software side was there AEM and Gretti and some of these other companies were building out some of those you know EMSs and some of those control systems were, were there but it still really was based in and around gas and oil and and you know and and combustion in that way whereas with EVs once you have a high voltage battery pack kind of how you just described it's like well now you're reimagining how you can understand how to really tune and tweak and manage a vehicle it, from a motorsports perspective I guess would you say I mean, is it even close to being the same? Aside from the fact that it's a vehicle with four wheels and tires, it's like, yeah, but it's so much more focused on software and digital, and then you can make it respond how you're used to, but how you get there is just completely different. Yeah.
1: I think you open Pandora's box with a lot of the software capabilities, because when you're dealing just with hardware, differentials, combustion engine stuff, there's just so much you can do. And um, when it's software, it's like, okay, so now I've got this digital drive shaft connecting the front to the, to the rear. Yeah. But um, what if I want the car to act more rear-wheel drive while I have more than 30 degrees of steering angle and I'm on the throttle more than 30% or whatever the scenario is? So now I can start throwing more power to the rear in certain scenarios where I would already have the load transferred there. Yeah. And maybe I want the handling to be different. Um, and then you start to, okay, well, what about yaw? If I have yaw, maybe I want to send some more power to the front. That'll help me save the oversteer a bit. Mm. Or if I have understeer, maybe I send the power to the back. So it becomes this limitless thing. And at some point you take the ultimate tool that the driver has away, which is predictability. Yeah. You want the car to basically do what you can anticipate it's going to do. Yeah. And if if not, if that kind of technology doesn't happen in a seamless way, if it happens just for the sake of doing it, because you can, yeah. then um, it starts to become a detriment to the performance and the comfort feeling behind the wheel. Yeah. So at that point, the driver will be like, hey, can we just stick a driver shaft in the thing and like, you know, make, <laughs> it, make it easier,
0: please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And, well, and there's some companies that are pursuing that way, like, like Porsche, for example, even in Taycan. Yeah, I mean, they actually have a gearbox inside of a Taycan, whereas most other EVs, it's just nope. You just basically have stop and go, essentially. Mm. You know, and so they're trying to implement some of these elements. I guess for for the street, we're talking a ton about motorsports, and I, and this, I could go on and on for this. I guess my thought is translating that to an everyday EV experience. Are there any EVs on the road that you've driven that are just you know you could go buy it off of a dealer lot that you would say that actually is is the type of vehicle I could say they've understood the performance aspect of this. Because that's probably a complaint we hear often with EVs. Is it's like, yeah, it's just it doesn't have soul. It's it's kind of like an appliance. It doesn't, it doesn't respond to me as a driver. Are you are there? Are there vehicles that you've driven that you feel like actually they paid attention to a lot of things that we've just been talking about about how to give a driver a better feel?
1: Um, it's hard to say. I haven't driven yeah. all the EVs that are out and. Um, in the Volkswagen group, which I, you know, I'm still sponsored by Volkswagen. I would say Volkswagen leaves any of that type of feel and real hardcore driver engagement to like the Porsche side of things. Um, that may not be all the case, always the case in the future, but, um, I did do the commercial with Keanu Reeves in, in the Taycan and, Mm -hmm. um, I was super impressed with that car. Uh, it's one of those things that, I think the first step when they were coming up with 150, $200,000 EVs is like, you know, let's make this not a big departure from what people expect from Porsche. Right. Yeah. So yeah. It's, everything's going to feel and smell and seem just like a, what you're used to. The only difference is you plug it in instead of put fuel in. Yeah. And so that makes it feel comfortable. That yep. has to be um, the fact is there's, What happens in motorsport in EV and with the boundaries that are being pushed with all those other laws of physics that you can manipulate with the software Mm. we were talking about, the torque vectoring and stuff, that's just sort of waiting in the wings for production cars. I haven't heard of anybody really utilizing that yet. Yeah. And, um will that happen while we're still driving them ourselves? I, I, I hope so.
0: While we're still driving them ourselves. I love that. Yeah. Like, before I just like hit the button. It's like, uh, I don't need to be performance oriented. I'm just taking you to the grocery store. Yeah.
1: Yes. Uh, so, I mean, I hope so. And I, and I think that it will be fairly eye opening. I mean, even just in, okay, now I'm, not just plugging sponsors, but in the Volkswagen um, Golf <laughs> R, which is an, a combustion car, yeah. that is one of the few cars out there that does have an active differential that does send more power to the outside tire in a corner than the inside tire. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's an active torque vectoring system. And it's only on the rear, It's, uh, but it makes such a big difference in the driving dynamics at the limit mm-hmm. that, yeah. It's it's incredible, especially on in wet or snowy conditions or even gravel. Yeah, uh, right. it just makes you a better driver than you really are. And yeah. then if you were to go take that to where EVs can go, where the you could have four motors and over, you know, really manipulate that torque vectoring. The steering wheel is really kind of secondary at that point. It just sort of starts the corner, and then the torque vectoring is really what does it. It yeah. does the turning yeah. at the limit. Um, so it's uh it it kind of I think we step into a whole level of uh, another level of physics that are available. And yeah. that's gonna be interesting if that makes it into motorsport soon.
0: Well, and that's it's so funny because you even go back just 10 years, five years, 10 years, there have been people that have been putting together, you know, for example, you know, dragster EVs off of just parts they were finding off of whatever they could get. You know, one guy I think it was up in Canada built a, you know a, a little drag EV off of a Model S motor and like old batteries from a Chevy Bolt. And it was like, hey man, I'm only going a quarter mile. I don't need this battery to be gigantic. I just wanna make it go fast, you know? Yeah. And so I it's gonna be interesting to see how that requires a prowess still in mechanical engineering to a point, but then you get to the place of the software we're talking about. That is a whole new expertise that I think a lot of folks are, you know, maybe from, you know, for people that we've known for a long time in the industry, that's a reimagining of what they've been doing. But there's this whole generation coming up that is gonna basically be living through that process that we've been talking about. And they may become, you know, perfect experts at it and say, Oh no, I could totally, I could totally reprogram this thing right now to do exactly what you're talking about. Give me 30 seconds and I'll write a new line of code. And it's just like, wow, this is this is totally different from what we did back in like the late 90s. <laughs> it,
1: it's true, but there is this fork where the engineers know they can do it a certain way, and the drivers the further down the road and the closer to the limit that you get of what you can get out of these four contact patches, they want it to be predictable in a certain way. Yeah. And you know, even if you're pitching it in sideways, is that going to be within the realm of what that code is or is that code going to try to fix it itself and make it feel kind of mysterious and unpredictable to the driver, yeah. you know, et cetera. And, and so then that's why I say, you know, hopefully we're driving it ourselves still when we yeah. really get this seamless kind of interaction happening um there was a series and i can't i think it was robo car that was uh, there was talk about this series happening i know they went out and did some events and but they were doing like i think if i'm remembering this right for example 10 laps with a driver driving yeah. a single seat formula car getting yeah. out and then the car drove itself for 10 laps and raced against the other cars that, that were Uh, didn't have drivers in them. And so I assume that they learned stuff on the grip and everything of the track at that moment by the human driver. Um, But they had obviously collected a huge amount of data about the track.
0: It makes Um, me wonder too, is if you think about uh, artificial intelligence applications for how it can be responding to the input it's getting based on software and just based on data is could an AI basically be thinking on your behalf inside of an electric car that you're racing to see how you as a driver are trying to push different elements of the vehicle and then respond, as you said, like the engineers, it's, you're going to diverge. The engineer's going to say, well, we want, we're going to do this way. And the driver's going to say, yeah, but this is the response and this is what I'm looking for as a driver. Is there opportunity for an AI to basically do, not the thinking on behalf of the driver, but to basically understand the feel of a particular driver and say, you know, like I, we just did three laps and this is the feedback I was getting. You know, and by this getting from the driver, the AI could say, I can make those tweaks right now based on the type of input I was getting from how, where the steering was, where the throttle was, et cetera. And then could that AI make those adjustments? And I think that's a huge opportunity. I mean, I'm, we're kind of getting off into the realm of like, you know, supercomputing at this point. But I wonder if that could be applied that way. Because because at that yeah. point, it is responding not by an engineer saying we want to just do this. It's an AI saying, no, but this is what the driver was doing. I could sense yeah. that.
1: There's, I, I i Am not super well versed on AI, but I do know that with textual based AI, it seems like it as a sample of its latest information that it's using to base its next decision on, sometimes it's sampling its own misinformation. Mm -hmm. And so it can possibly veer off into, you know, start forking away from optimized going down another road. Um, But <clears throat> and then feedback from a driver, um, can be difficult to interpret yeah. guilty. It's just difficult <laughs> uh, communication sometimes. Yeah. Um, but yeah. if you're just interpreting the inputs of the driver and recognizing why those inputs happen, there's probably enough variability in human inputs mm-hmm. that it would take a pretty big sampling to get something that was really at the limit of a top percent driver. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that has to, I assume that that's being explored. And oh, it, we're
0: yeah. at the beginning of that conversation right now. I mean, everything, what chat GPT, and it's kind of like, well, oh my gosh, this thing could write me a poem. It's like, that's fine. But the stuff we're talking about is really, it's taking a, like, not like, again, like not a text input, but an actual active input of something that's reading as data in real time, and then giving feedback on. I think we're oftentimes having conversations in the EV space and, and with the work that I do, around how are people going to respond to everything we're talking about? And and yeah. oftentimes it, it just becomes, I mean, motorsports as a niche, this is a, this is a threat to a lot of people's basically experience for what they've done with as a career for what motorsports has been, because everything we're talking about is just different. It's a very different way to think about it. And in the same way, it turns to the same conversation for everyday people that are buying and driving everyday cars is, well, this is a car still, right? Or is it actually that much different? And I think part of what happens uh, when technology starts to evolve this way is cars have been the same way for 100 years. If you really get down to brass tacks, four wheels, you know, brake, accelerator, steering wheel, and you put gas in it, and it works. The, the manipulation and the customization and, and what, we, what created unique brands and nameplates was on the creativity of those different people that were basically saying, we're going to take an engine and build it this way, or we're going to take a suspension and, and dial it in this way. Everything else we're talking about right now is is in that digital realm, in, in a lot of ways, that most people just throw their hands in the air and say, "I don't get it." Like I know digital's there and it works, but I don't necessarily engage with it that way. This all sounds like you could be speaking Greek, you know? And I don't, and I don't yeah. know what you're saying. Um, and I think it's interesting because we're at the beginning of it.
1: Yeah, it's it's tricky. I mean, I will say that drivers anticipate things, and that's that's you know, once uh, AI driving gets to the point where it can anticipate what's happening mid-slide. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, then that's a whole nother world. That's that's really the difference between, a, you know, a driver who has the perfect reaction to everything is never going to be the quickest or best. The one that yeah. knows, can, can feel where the inertia is going, what the grip looks like right there and can anticipate exactly how that's going to affect the attitude of the car, mm-hmm. then that's that's where the level doesn't exist, I think, in automation. But yeah. Um, to your point, though, um, I do a race called the Nora... 1,000. This year we're doing the nor 500. I do this for Volkswagen, and we take an EV and we do it. We go down to Mexico. We've got the record for the longest EV um, in a race down there. The previous record was 47 miles, and we <laughs> uh, we did 1,140 miles, which was the you know the completion of the race. Yeah. But um one thing I never really thought about once you got out there, because it is just a steering wheel, paddles and some tires. It does feel just like a regular car once you get out there in the middle of Mexico and and in some points in baja if you break down you're spending the night because they have rules against flying at night there you can't fly helicopters you can't fly cars or fly airplanes (laughs) um, at night and so certainly not cars quite yet but they uh and so there there is this like don't hit anything don't crash don't break down and you see people breaking down and and i didn't expect to but in the ev you stern you start to think about what really is what could break down? Like there's very right. few moving parts. Right. Um, there's very few things just rubbing against each other that could wear out. Right. And it, you know, it's just uh, it, it. It was. An, I think that's what we really kind of proved for VW anyway. Is that off roading is a great way to showcase the reliability um, of EV, mm. just because of the nature of the beast. That 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 there's not a, a you know, you're not going to overheat the oil. You're not going to go yeah. low on this fluid or that fluid and
0: um well it's a it's a a rotor and a stator and a high voltage battery Mm -hmm. making it just spin right that's the argument's been made for so long for so many people that are ev advocates who have said this is why it's so beautiful is because it has you know so many fewer moving parts like 90 percent fewer moving parts and that's true but then to your point about so you guys went 1100 miles in that race one of the first questions that i think anybody would ask is so did that battery pack have 1100 miles on it Or did you guys recharge it? And if you recharge it, how did you guys do that in the middle of nowhere in Mexico?
1: Yeah, we recharged it every 150 miles or so, which is about the same duration that a race truck could get out of a tank of fuel. Yeah. Um, But we had to average. It was a stock car, pretty much. Mm -hmm. Um, Very little suspension travel. It was just basically reinforced skid plates and suspension arms and stuff. Um, And so our speed was really limited by the fact that we couldn't hit compressions or bumps very fast. And because our speed was limited, our range was great. Um, The faster you go, the shorter the range. Oh yeah. (laughs) Um, Then we developed a charger that was in a trailer and that race is stage by stage. So Mm -hmm. I did this with Reese Millen Racing based in Huntington Beach. And um, we literally, we shoot commercials and movies. We stunt both stunt drive in that industry. And we literally took a, a basically a generator on the back of a truck that they used for film sets yeah. and pulled the trailer with it with an inverter. And we trailered it from one stage to the next, charging it um, in the trailer stages. And th- as crude as that is, that is that's how early day exploration of using you know, a technology and a, and, and a place that doesn't have the infrastructure to support it. That's how that works. So yeah. the very early days, it was very inexpensive. Um, when I did it, I was thinking five years from now, this is going to be cheaper to race Baja electric than it is combustion. Um, mm-hmm. That may have been a little soon, probably a little longer than that. But charging systems, portable charging systems are getting so much faster and better yeah. that I think every year you're going to see more and more EVs down there racing. And it's strange that you wouldn't think endurance off-road as being like a place where EV racing is going to break through. Yeah. But it makes a lot of sense down there just because it saves you so much money yeah. um, on the mechanical yeah. side of things.
0: Right. Um, well, yeah, it's that balancing act. Where's the cost savings coming from? It's like, well, we could have this cheap fuel that's readily available and then you know X amount of thousands of moving parts. Or we could have basically a handful of moving parts and then maybe pay a little bit extra to have the fuel available for us at each stop. Right, yeah. it's it's funny it, the the fuel conversation comes up so often with folks that are just new to this conversation about EVs. And I think you made a good point about how Volkswagen, the Volkswagen Group, approached ID. Four and some of their platform approaches. They said we don't want to make this feel too different from what people have been used to. When you get into an ID. Four, for example, it's it feels just like a car. I mean, it's got a little screen, you know, two little screens going on. The, sh- the shifter is a little bit quirky, but aside from that, once you're on the road, this thing feels pretty familiar. Whereas right. some of the new EVs that are coming out. They are, I mean, Tesla is an example. You can look at Lucid and Rivian. They are meant to f- sort of feel familiar, but they're very software-based, very screen-focused, very digital-focused, no tactile buttons, for example. Right. And, and I think that's something that, I, I think it's important that the legacy brands are taking what their knowledge is around, and whether we're talking about an everyday car or even even for motorsports, just saying, what do we know does work that we're really good at and how do we make this work for everybody that we're trying to target with this particular application? Um, and I think that the benefits as you described for the race you ran of just how, well, yeah, once you can apply it the right way and then say, gosh, you know what, this is, yeah, there's not a lot that could break on this thing. So if we could really focus on how we fill this thing back up with electrons, whenever we decide to stop, I think it's an interesting thought because you're in the middle of nowhere, but you're at this, you know, at this really long race, but the logistics of the fuel, once that's answered, then all of a sudden the racing aspect of it becomes less of a headache. You're just kind of like, and no, no, more- yeah. yeah, without a doubt. Um, so I guess that's you also mentioned that you, you and Reese Miller were uh, in the race together and you, you mentioned you guys have done stunt driving. So I, I have to ask. So a really, really good friend of mine I went to school with um, turned me on to the Ford versus Ferrari film. So now did you do did you do stunt driving in, in that as well?
1: Yeah, I was one of the stunt drivers. There were a lot of us. Okay, um, I played a role in that film, which if you blink, you miss it um, which was, uh, Ronnie Bucknum. He finished third, um, but drove quite a few of the cars, almost all of them at one point. Uh, and, um, that those films, sometimes the bigger films that have a list actors, there's a lot more focus on the actual dialogue, you know, Mm -hmm. because you got to take advantage of those a list actors and less focused on the, a lot of the action. Yeah. But um, still was great, uh, amazing film to work on. I've always loved that story. Oh, it's um, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so cool to be a part of them bringing it to film.
0: Well, and that's, I mean, for the films that we were talking about, a, you know, this is a, a history, historical story, a lot of heritage there. Everything, you know, for the Ford, you know, how they finally came out and beat Ferrari. But then you look at where, I remember the story when it came out when they, when they refilmed the Italian job and they had the minis in the, you know, like underground in L.A., and those were electric back then when they filmed that movie back in like 2001 or two because they didn't want the emissions underground while they were filming and i remember the first time i read that i was kind of like well i guess it makes sense you know but like that's, yeah. a, that's an application for evs i would have thought of
1: right yeah stunt cars i mean there are a lot of evs now in stunts mostly camera cars so mm-hmm. um a lot of people are developing various versions of camera cars that are nice and quiet. There's a lot of people standing around them and everything. And so it's nice that the thing's not just sitting there running. Yeah. Um, and, and they accelerate quick. I think they're very easy to match speed. A lot of a camera car just is placement. It's, a, it's like a yeah. cameraman on wheels. So it's got to be placed perfectly. So um, without having to worry about whether the turbo's spooling up or not, you know, et cetera, they can, they can place those cameras perfectly. So EV is definitely making its way into Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, not to mention that in the commercial world, uh, agencies are much more cognizant of how green various production houses are. Yeah. And I don't know if they're bidding, you know, choosing bids based on that, but it's certainly, that's the next step. So. I, I would, I
0: would say that the one thing that often happens in EVs too, is that you have, you have the opportunity to apply, uh, you know, environmental thinking to anything, right. Whether it's movie productions and things along those lines. Um, I think that the way we're talking, the way that we were just talking about motorsports and and the the preciseness that it can offer if you understand how to do it. It may not be that we're there yet for motorsports, but as you just described, you're like, no, this thing is just a trailing vehicle and it just has to go X miles an hour. We gotta get up to that speed in X amount of seconds. Well, with an EV, it's like, yeah, we can calculate that pretty accurately without goofing that up. So that application is beautiful,
1: <laughs> right? Yeah, it's, it's good to like driving them. Yeah. Uh, the the camera car operators like driving them and they 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 do the job well there's constant i mean i've I've been on at least half a dozen camera car tryouts where you know need for speed they're like oh we're going to be shooting everything at 100 plus miles an hour we need a camera car like nobody's ever developed before we got a ferrari here with a camera mounted on the hood we've got this mustang with camera car integrated you know and so every you go to the racetrack and the camera cars show how fast they can go to keep up and then you get on set and you shoot it all at 60 anyway but um you try for a hundred uh, right. but the um so there always is this desire to push the limits and evs have opened up a lot of doors there i think we're starting to see the first Rivians probably come out as camera cars um trucks are always uh trucks and suvs are the typical ones one because they can hold a you know director and dp and everything in them yeah. and two um because, you know, you can park them up on the sidewalk and get a good angle and have them come down a little hill. And, you know, they're, they're a lot more versatile than some of the, the car-based ones. But, yeah, Hollywood, uh, you know, may not be the quickest at adopting new technology, but there's a lot of innovation that happens in the wings there. Oh, yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I think the first electric vehicle I ever saw was a camera car in Hollywood probably was Tokyo Drift. Oh, wow. Uh, we used, like, a little electric car to do some of the scenes with crowds and stuff and drifting around. Um, that was the third Fast and Furious. And I, I don't remember what year that was, but it was a while ago. I was going to say, yeah, it's,
0: I mean, not maybe close to 20 years ago now. And that's that's what's amazing is it's <laughs> Yeah, I know, right? You think about it, like, I'm like, well, the first one was 2000, summer of 2001, I think. Wow. So, uh, you know, and 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 what are they on now? Fast and Furious, what is it, 10, 11? Yeah, I was, yeah. Yeah, keep losing track. Out, yeah. I mean, credit to credit to the franchise. I mean, looking back on that, I mean, I remember when it was filmed. I mean, I grew up in up in Lancaster, Pondale, going to like LACR on Grudge Night on Fridays, you know. And and I remember watching the movie in the theater in Pondale when he goes, you know, what it ran in Pondale, and the whole theater like loses its mind. I'm like we've made it. <laughs> I'm thinking
1: if, we've if, made it.
0: We've made yeah. it. I'm like, if Afro Man and Pondale mentioned in Fast and Furious is how we've made it. I don't know if some we hang our hat on everybody, but okay. It's, so. honestly,
1: it's been downhill from there.
0: I, so. I love the. I still love the first one. I mean, <laughs> it, it is it is point break with cars, you know. But but it's beautiful, you know. It's no, the it's, franchise
1: is great, and what yeah. it's done for the automotive industry. I mean, oh. it, at that point, um, at that point, that is cars were not bankable anymore you know not really yeah yeah after you know blues brothers since then cars were kind of a you know dukes of hazard kicked in there but that knight rider maybe but yeah. they were not that bankable and uh fast and furious suddenly made cars bankable again and, and suddenly yeah. networks were like oh we need to do car shows that's how top gear you know came back to the u.s okay. um after they had kind of a missed attempt uh in discovery channel days and when we first did the top gear pilot it was actually for nbc okay. for um you know for network television that was a big deal for for a you know non scripted show to go at that time this is before kind of reality tv was taken over the right. ratings um but uh you know then they revamped night rider they start everybody started throwing money back into car shows and i think that helped keep this current generation of Mm. car enthusiasts it kept them going and now what we're talking about and you know what what we see with what people do with either their hot rods or with evs or whatever how they modify them at sema and this and that Mm. that is going to be responsible for kickstarting the next generation of of uh enthusiasts and and hopefully keeping them interested in driving cars
0: well, I don't, I don't think we're too far gone yet. I think, in fact, what I think is happening is people are rediscovering these tactile things that their parents loved. You know, these younger generations that didn't grow up, like, you know, in love with cars. But for example, like last year, records outsold CDs for the first time in like 35 years or something like that. They're like, vinyl is back, baby. You know, and I'm thinking, well, yeah. You know, because if you live your entire life through a screen, it's almost like the moment you discover this this thing outside of the, the filter you had through a screen It's 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 a new feeling, but to your point, it's past when they were kids doing it like we were. Now they're older, but they're going. Gosh, you get like you can do that with music. Yeah, you don't just have to have your iPhone. You can literally like have a device that plays this stuff. And by the way, on vinyl, it sounds great. You know, and in the same way, I think that's the argument people make about you know, well, yeah, EVs don't have sound. EVs don't they don't respond like you can't respond with the five senses the way that you do to a combustion engine vehicle. And so I think there's place for you know, for gas powered motorsports in a way that there's always going to be a, a, a draw there and a tug there. I, you know, but I love seeing things like formula E and extreme E because it, it is, it's this introduction of a new way of thinking about how motorsports can work. And I think that the people that have, you know, been coming up and you know seeing movies, like we were talking about just kind of like where automotive has been in this line of like the last 20 years, whether it's been film or not, cars aren't going away here in America. It's part of, it's Americana. It's part of American culture. But how people value them and where they see them fitting in their life might be different. But I don't necessarily foresee that, you know, it's it's just gonna vanish overnight. I think it's just gonna be a, a different a different way to appreciate what they can be in, in like you know, whether it's your everyday life or maybe it's an enthusiast type thing, whether it's tuning like you like you said for like SEMA, you know, go to car shows, like Hana Port Night stuff back in the day. I I mean I I still see all the people with Teslas that are modifying model three and model Y now it's the, it's like the same crowd. Some of them are new and younger, but some of these folks, like these are like hot and fortnight people that I knew like 20 years ago We're like, well, yeah, now I have the disposable income to actually buy all the stuff I want for this thing. Right, right. So, yeah. I'm, so I'm going to modify the heck out of it. So I don't see it going away. I just think we've just sort of like shifted the timeline by which people engage with vehicles, but it's um, full circle yeah. to the movie conversation. I think it's because they still see, they still see them as a, an extension of who they are.
1: For sure. And Fast and Furious really did put light on that, that, that they were almost a fashion accessory. And your car was a statement of who you were. Um, yeah, I remember a book I saw in college. It was like, you are what you drive and it sort of stereotyped every car (laughs) type. And it was hilarious and true. But, um, and it, you know, I made a joke a couple times on Top Gear that, you know, every like Subaru STI owners were always IT guys. And you know, there are like a lot of you laughing because you probably know a couple. Oh, it,
0: yeah. No, I know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the um it,
1: it's uh, but then personalizing them, of course, is a natural thing. I'm surprised it's taken so long for me to see Teslas modified around here in Orange County. I saw one yesterday and, and now I see them every day at some point. But um it, yeah, it, and that's, that's it, one it thing to it. It. Yeah. what's that? That's one thing that we do in the States with cars, yeah. uh, you know, from the beginning. And, and you know, you go to Germany. I used to give the spiel when I used to do these ride and drive events for BMW. And I used to do the spiel where um, we talk about how in the U.S. we modified, you know, we would put bigger wheels or whatever on our tires as, like a, as a statement. When they put the bigger wheels and tires on their cars in Germany, it was so they could shave three minutes off their commute time to work. Yeah. and like everything was about function and purpose and they were the you know they're on the autobahn they're driving 100 percent all the time kind of a thing it's a little bit yeah. more trafficy now but um that uh, there was kind of there's kind of a cultural difference there but mm-hmm. here we do have this critical extension of just like you said extension of who you are represented in in your car Yeah, and i mean that's a that's a big tank of fuel keeping the the fire of automotive industry going here so it's, yeah, uh,
0: well, and EVs—they're going to be a part of that. Um, but it's—it's going to be interesting to see how it transitions because there will be purists who fight the idea of you can't—you can't make that an exciting vehicle. But I—but some of the EVs—I mean, that's what I'm excited about um, for Electrify Expo this year. The electrify show-off element is really shining a light on the fact there's people that have been doing this that are tuners. They've been doing this for years already, saying no, but like this is you can still do this. I'm not too keen on the fake motor and you know exhaust sounds just yet. <laughs> I don't think that's something I'm gonna fall in love with. Where you can like attach an exhaust no. to a Model Three. I'm like, eh, no, don't do that.
1: You know, there is but- a movie, by the way. I, you know, I'm sorry that I don't know the name of it, but it's um, Paul Blart Mall Cop, that guy, and Vince Vaughn are engineers, mm-hmm. and they are charged with coming up with a sound for the Charger. They literally shot it in the chrysler building i think salt and pepper in there somewhere yeah what is that movie called yeah How do, oh. i can't remember the name of it. anyway we'll have it, it, the was, <laughs> it was 12 years after the scene was done in the the whatever showroom in the at the chrysler center that in reality there was the actual ceo of chrysler or uh, of yeah. whatever department Um, in that exact same room, in a charger, sitting there revving a fake sound card, just like they did in the movie, like 12 years later. And nobody ever called that out. Like how did, I mean, this was 12 years ago in the same freaking room (laughs) doing the exact same thing in a movie that's, and part of me, I feel like movies are just, you know, controlled by aliens and they just are telling us our future. Like iRobot, yeah, come on, iRobot. This is like, you know, we're going to be taking uh Self driving cars is going to be unheard of and super dangerous. Like, part of me, I I kind of like look at that stuff, and uh, I kind of, when I get science fiction about it, I I sort of love looking to movies as inspiration of what the possible future is like. And I love how much work movies put into making, uh, you know, the future look in a way that is possibly believable based on fact.
0: Oh yeah, well the uh, yeah, the authenticity of where could we actually take this not being overly outlandish and to your point like look like, this is 12 years ago and, and a no one brought it up which I think is bonkers but at the same time too if you look at the st- visionaries and storytellers who have said like this is where i think we could take society it's yeah. almost like it becomes like like subconsciously ingrained in people and then someone has an idea 12 years later you know what we should do we should have that event right here in the right? This room, you're going, I feel like we've seen this before. <laughs>
1: yeah. Oh, it's gonna be amazing. We're gonna yeah. catch everybody by surprise. No, yeah. 12 years later is unbelievable. I can't it's
0: like Matt Groening from The Simpsons, who's just kind of like, Yeah, I, I was gonna call that one, but uh, I let <laughs> someone else have it. Because <laughs> yes. all I gotta do is watch the Simpsons, you're like, You're gonna know what's gonna happen in the next century of America, basically.
1: That's
0: funny. So well, well, dude, I, this has been an awesome conversation, man. I I I really was excited to chat with you today. Um, I guess closing question. If if there was an EV on the road that you thought, okay, I'd put that in my garage if you don't have one yet, which one would be? And then also, which one do you think we could get Adam to drive? I mean, honestly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Is there a Cadillac EV coming out? There must the, be.
0: The Lyric. Yeah, the Lyric. But it's an SUV. You know, it's probably maybe not his flavor.
1: Yeah, so. He's getting old. He can't He can't sit down in cars anymore. <coughs>
0: He gets to like just cr- like like slide in, not get down into it.
1: Yeah. Actually, I don't know if he's getting older. He doesn't seem like he is getting older. Strangely enough. <laughs> um, I would, I do like the Tycon. I I have since that commercial. Yeah. And um, I still think it's one of the best all rounders out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I I will say that one of the things I like about my ID four little bit on brand but is that the battery is smaller and i can charge mm-hmm. it at home and uh, it doesn't matter how low it is i can charge it overnight and uh so i don't it, i i hear about you know issues at charging stations and things like that and i just don't have to worry about that so mm-hmm. i i i will say that i do kind of see myself sticking with something with a smaller battery for a while not necessarily having a discipline to always plug it in every night. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's the Taycan. I think that that was a phenomenal car and uh, I wish I would have got one when they were uh, not selling very well. <laughs> well, well, yeah. Now you're speaking to my heart when you're
0: talking about charging and how that works, but we can have you back for another show to talk about all that because it's a, that's the hot topic of how do you make this thing work? You know, but for, yeah. for another day, but on, on that note, uh, for everybody who's listening, thanks again for listening to the Electrify News podcast. Uh, be sure to check us out on wherever podcasts are sold. You can pick us up on Spotify, on Apple iTunes, et cetera. Uh, and also be sure to follow Electrify Expo on all social media channels, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And also for all seven cities where Electrify Expo will be held this year, be sure to go to electrifyexpo.com to get your tickets today. And Tanner, again, thank you so much for coming by the show. Thank you. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation. hope everybody else did too. And we'll see you again on the next episode. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Electrifying News Podcast, brought to you by the creators of Electrify Expo. Be sure to catch full
1: video episodes on YouTube and follow us on social media platforms at Electrifying News for daily clips, news, and more.